If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, and we'll be reading through to chapter 9, verse 1. Some of you who have been traveling through the Gospel of Matthew with us, probably wondering why are you skipping a section in Matthew chapter 8. Next week when Pastor Todd is back, he will go back and preach uh, Matthew 8, 23 through 27. Uh, the Family Summit, we kind of changed things around, and we had already scheduled to do things this way, so we're sticking to it. But Matthew chapter 8, 29 through 9, 1, let's read it. It says, And when he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we ask you, Lord, would you please help us as we look to your word this morning? God, would you, through the power of your spirit, would you please give illumination to your word? God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through this text. God, you would pierce our hearts, that you would encourage us, convict us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, even those who may be here that are in unbelief, that do not know you, who are lost, God, that they would hear the words of this text and be encouraged today to come to Christ. And so, Lord, we give you our minds, we give you our hearts, we give you our ways, and we ask you, Lord, please help us know your word today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure many of you uh, here this morning probably have family members or friends or neighbors or co-workers for whom you struggle to keep hope alive. You think about those neighbors, those friends, those family members who may be resistant to the gospel. Maybe their lives are not only filled with sin, but they're seemingly dominated by it, they're controlled by it. Maybe there are those who the sins they've committed or engaged in are so uh, heinous that their situation just seems hopeless. Or maybe it's those who are consumed with materialism and they just don't see any need of Christ. Or maybe there are other reasons you've lost hope for another person. If that is the case, we need to be reminded that by God's account, it is not hopeless. 
Though it seems impossible, we just meditated on Luke 18, verse 27, where Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Do you understand this morning that there's no hopeless situation? That's where you should say amen. There's not one. There's not any hopeless situation. There's all hope because of Christ. As Christians, we know this. We know that there is no hopeless situation. We give voice to it. We make statements about it that roll off our lips. But when it comes to the day-to-day, week-to-week, and dealing with those who are resistant to the gospel, whose lives are filled with sin, we end up on the end where we lose hope. Do you agree this morning? We do that. But our text this morning reminds us that because of Christ, there is no hopeless situation. There's no hopeless situation. But before we dive into the text, I think it would be good for us to kind of get the context of what's going on in chapter 8. In chapter 8 of Matthew's gospel, in verses 1 through 17, there's three scenes of healing that goes on. In verses 1 through 4, we see that Jesus heals the leper. In verses 5 through 13, Jesus heals the centurion's servant. In verses 14 through 17, we see Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. In verse 26, we see that Jesus calms the storm. And so the whole of chapter 8 shows forth, sets forth the power of Christ. It sets that forth. The first 17 verses show his power over disease. In verses 23 through 27, it shows his power over the forces of nature. And then in our text this morning, in verse 28 to the very end of this chapter, it shows God's sovereign power even over the darkness. And so the sovereignty of Christ is set forth in Matthew chapter 8. We think about this particular incident, this story that's recorded for us here in the Gospel of Matthew. This incident occurs when Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee and goes to the other side of the region of the Gadara. It was a region that was primarily populated by Gentiles. How do we know that? If you look in the text, there's a lot of pigs. There's a lot of pigs present. Mark's gospel tells us there were some 2,000. The the demons entered and went off into the water. And so this tells us this was primarily a Gentile area because Jews weren't real fond of the pig since there were laws and commands concerning eating pork. Thank God that's not the case now. Amen. And so the Lord, Lord Jesus, comes to this region of the Gentiles, preaching the gospel, preaching and proclaiming the word of truth and performing deeds of power. That sets the stage for us this morning as we go into our text. And there's three things that I want us to look at this morning as we look at this text. The first thing I want us to look at are the demon-possessed men. Secondly, we will look at Jesus as sovereign over the power, powers of darkness. 
And third and lastly, we will look at the tragic response of the city. That's where we're going this morning. And so let's begin by looking at the demon-possessed men. It tells us in verse 28 and 29, And when he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarians, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs. They were fierce, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And so we see in our text that Jesus has just calmed a raging storm, and now he encounters two raging men. We're told in our text that these men were demon-possessed. What is What does that mean? It naturally would ask the question, what does it mean to be demon-possessed? Here, Matthew, in his record of this account, that's the word, the phrase that he uses. Mark uses the phrase demon-possessed, an unclean spirit in Mark chapter 5. And Luke's record of this, he says the man had demons, referring to unclean spirits. And so the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean for someone to be demon-possessed? Well, it means this. It means to be demon-possessed. Demonized. It, me- it carries the idea that some external force has control of that person, has influence on that person, has dominion on that person. That's what it means to be demon-possessed. So here are two men who are possessed by demons, men who are under the control of demons. That's what we're being told in in Matthew chapter 8. In fact, they were under such control of demons that their behavior had changed and altered. The text tells us they were fierce and dangerous, so much so that no one could pass through there. So it gives us an idea of their condition. But in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 5, which we had read this morning for us by Dason Ritchie, Mark 5 gives us even more detail about the condition of this demon possession. Even though Mark, he only mentions one, Luke mentions one, Matthew mentions two, there's no contradiction here. It's the gospel writers recording and highlighting certain things to tell the story. They were men who were demon possessed. It's what was going on. And in Mark chapter 5 in his gospel, I think I want to just kind of go back over that with you again. I'm not going to read the text, but I think it helps you just understand what this really meant. What was really going on, as we're told in Mark chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, these men lived among tombs. They lived among the dead. Unclean place. In other words, they were pushed out of society. Their friends, their family, society, culture had all given up on these individuals. And they're now living among the tombs, among the dead, in an unclean place. We're told in Mark chapter 5 that they had great strength, great strength, abnormal strength, that where they had been chained, and what did they do to the chains? They broke them apart. This abnormal strength. We're told in Mark chapter 5 that they didn't sleep. We're told that they had lost their minds. They were completely irrational. They were destructive. They were trying to kill themselves. We're also told in verse 15 of chapter 5, they were naked. They were naked, out of their minds, insane, pushed away by family, culture, to the place of the tombs. 
So here are two men who are in a really bad way. They were hopeless. All had given up hope for them. I mean, think about it. What is worse than being demon-possessed? Can you think of anything worse than being influenced and controlled and dominated by demons? I can't. Their condition is unique. There's no arguing that. But it seems like for these two men, the devil had had his way with them. They were out of their minds, and they were dangerous. But it's interesting what happens to them in the text. I think there's a couple of things, and I just want to pause here and to just make some application here for us. I think the text reminds us as Christians to never give in to or think someone is beyond hope. To never give in to or to think that someone is beyond hope. Yeah, we might not have been like these men that are mentioned in Mark cha- or Matthew chapter 8, But we were all once dead in our trespasses and sins, and God had mercy on us in Christ, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. So this text encourages us not to lose hope for someone, to not lose hope for those around us. Let us not be those who look at, let us be those who look at every sinner with compassion. Let us strive by grace to be those at all times and with all people look upon them with true hope. Let us be those who don't stop praying. Let us be those who don't walk past a sinner and think they're too far gone. Don't give up on sharing the gospel. God can save worse of sinners. He saved you. He saved me. This text also reminds us as Christians regarding this spiritual darkness because we tend to fall on two extremes when it comes to this issue of Satan and demons. We tend to fall on one extreme or the other. We either deny they exist or we live like they don't exist or We believe there's a demon behind every corner. If you're a Christian and you believe the Bible, you have to acknowledge the supernatural. You have to acknowledge spiritual darkness. Paul reminds us of that, does he not? In Ephesians chapter 6, 11 through 12, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What do we wrestle against then, Paul? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He reminds us that these things do exist. And we must acknowledge them as well. This text also reminds those who are not Christians that there is hope for you because of Christ. Perhaps some of you here this morning 
You may think that there is no hope for you. You may be thinking you've done too many sinful things to be saved. You may be thinking you're too far gone, or you may be thinking you've done too many wicked things. Or you may be filled with skepticism and question whether God can even save. This text, Matthew chapter 8, debunks this type of thinking. If these men can be saved, so can you. Christ is our only hope. He is the only hope for the believer. He is the only hope for the unbeliever. He is our only hope because he is sovereign over the powers of darkness. As we read in verse 29 through 32, it says, And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs, many pigs, was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away to the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go! So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the water. So here we turn our attention away from the two men, and we give now our attention to the power of Jesus. You look at these demons. These demons know that Jesus is going to judge them. They know that he is going to punish them. They're terrified about it. They're pleading with Jesus about this. What are you doing here, O Son of God? Why are you here? We don't want to miss that in the text. And they immediately begin asking, look at verse 31, they begin asking for him to send them into the pigs. Which just reminds us, this tells us, they didn't have free reign to do whatever they wanted to do. They could only do what Christ allowed them to do. Because Jesus is sovereign over the darkness. You should say amen to that. He is sovereign over the darkness. I mean, you think about references to this in Job chapter 1, primary text, reminder of this. What do we have? We have Satan roaming the earth. He comes before God. And what does God? Satan brings up Job. Is that how it goes? Gosh, man, you guys are a hard crowd this morning. That's not how it goes. Who brings up Job? God does. God brings up Job. And what does Satan acknowledge? He acknowledges that there's hedge of protection around Job and his life. And he can't do anything to him unless God removes these things. And guess what the Lord did? He granted permission. He gave permission. And what did Satan do? My goodness, within 24 hours... Job's life looked completely different. You think about Luke 22, verse 31, where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's kind of interesting because he says Satan demanded to have you. The you is actually in the Greek is plural. It's all the disciples. The literal reading of the Greek is this, that Satan obtained you by asking. He obtained you by asking. But look what Jesus told him. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Or you think about Paul and his testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, where a thorn in the flesh is sent to him from a messenger of Satan. And he goes to God and he's asking God to remove it. And what does the Lord say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. So these demons, they know that they had to get permission. They know that they had to get permission to enter the pigs. There's something mysterious about all this, but there is also an element and a layer of comfort in all this. Because before Satan can trouble you in the slightest, before any of his demons can come near you, they must first get specific permission from our loving Heavenly Father. They must. And you understand that the whole time, they are subject to the sovereignty of God. The whole time. Wow. It's amazing. As one commentator, H.L. Ellison, in his commentary on Job said, he wrote, I think this is 1952, He said this, he said, He, referring to Satan, is not sovereign in a rival kingdom, but a rebel to whom God gives as much rope as will glorify his name. A rebel, it's not a rival kingdom. He's a rebel. And God gives as much rope to him as will bring glory to the name of Christ. There's a lot of comfort in that. I mean, the Scripture sets forth the absolute, undiminished sovereignty of God over all the earth. You think about Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. Psalm 47, verse 2. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. You think about Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Isaiah says, for I am... I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Sounds like to me in Scripture, God's sovereign. But too often, Christians act as if Satan is sovereign, as if demons are sovereign. And Matthew chapter 8 reminds us they're not doing whatever they want to do. They're only able to do what God allows them to do. And you look in our text at how Christ displays this power, how Christ displays his control over these demons. The text says this, and he said to them, Go. Did you notice when we read that? One word. One word. With one word, Jesus cast them out. And they came out and went into the pigs, 
And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the water. So with this one word, off they went into the pigs. And the pigs rush off the bank and they drowned in the water. This is a very strange situation. I don't know about you, but I have to ask the question, why, why pigs? Why the pigs? What did they do wrong? Mark tells us there are some 2,000 of them. Do you realize that's a lot of barbecue? It's a lot. Don't you agree? I can smell the smokers now. 2,000 gone. I think there's a few reasons why. I think one, it was to show everyone that the demons really did leave these men. That the demons really did leave these men. How were they to know? How were they to know if the demons actually went out? How did they not know? It was just words that Jesus was mumbling and it just, whatever. How would they know? They knew it because they saw what happened to these pigs. I also think it's this. I think it's to show the men who are witnessing this the true intent of the demons. I think it reminds us that Satan wants to destroy. He wants to take life out of you. He was doing it in these men. I read that to you in Mark 5 and here. Go look at Luke, same story. He wants to take life out of you. He wants to crush you. He wants to create misery. He wants to create havoc. His intention is always to harm, guys. It's always to harm. And this is a reminder. This is what he does. This is what it looks like. This is the end result of what he's trying to accomplish. And we're reminded also that the Son of God is able to liberate from the powers of darkness. And that's what Jesus does for these men. He delivers them from the domain of darkness and brings them into His marvelous light. The Son of God is able to liberate and set free Why? Because in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, we're told this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He rules over them. It is his power over darkness. And so if Jesus can transform these two men, he can transform anyone. Do you hear me this morning? In other words, there's no one that's beyond remedy. There's no one that's beyond hope. With one word, Christ set these men free. And with one word, He can set you free. Darkness cannot stand against the light of the world. And Jesus is still in that business. He's still in the business of demonstrating His power over darkness. He still sets people free from the bondage of sin. And I want you to notice in our text this morning, there's always those who are around witnessing. There's always those around who are watching events unfold. We're told in 
our text that there were herdsmen there that were watching this. And that when they saw it, they fled. It brings us to our last point, the tragic response of the people of the city. In verse 33 through 34, he says the herdsmen fled and going into the city, look what they did. They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Well, it sounds like this is going to be great. I'm going to read the rest. We'll get to it in just a minute. So Matthew records that these herdsmen left and they told everything, especially what had happened. So we can assume that they heard about Jesus, people in the city. They heard about Jesus. They came back and they saw the power of Jesus because they saw these two demon-possessed men. Something had changed. They seen the effects of Jesus' ministry. So if we were to just to pause here, don't read the rest, how would you assume this story would end? I mean, I would, I would expect that the people come out and rejoice in what Jesus did for these men. I would think they would come out and praise Christ for his power over the darkness, able to deliver these men that were so fierce and dangerous. They tried to chain them. They tried to remove them. They tried to rehabilitate these guys, and they couldn't do it. So you would think they'd come out, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. What was their response? And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, goodness, does that not jump out to you? They, they begged him, get out of here. Man, they begged Jesus to leave. The other gospel writers, Mark says they were afraid, and Luke says they were seized with great fear. I mean, got to ask the question, why did they want him to leave? Was it because of the miracle that he had done for these two men possessed by demons? Why would they reject him? Why would they turn their back on free sovereign grace? Why would they do this? The only answer we can give is that they love the world and the things of the world more than what Christ could offer them. In other words, they love their pig farms. They love their materialism and what that would give them more than Christ. I mean, you think about scriptural references. I I just want to give you one. You can see one in Acts 19, another one in Acts 16. But there's this whole thing that Luke records for us of this girl that has a spirit of divination who her parents are profiting off of her and what she's able to do, and Paul casts out the demon. Well, they start losing their profit. <laughs> what do they want to do? We've got to get rid of this gospel. We've got to get rid of these people talking about the gospel. The other one's in Acts 19. Demetrius, the silversmith, who was making all these idols. What Paul was preaching was starting to impact their economy. We've got to get rid of this. I want to say to you this morning, it's always a love issue. It's always a love issue of why people reject Jesus Christ. I hope you understand this morning that the root cause of rejection of Christ 
is always, always a love for darkness. Always. But what's even more terrifying is what happened when they begged him to leave. I think it's the most terrifying thing of the whole text. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Interestingly, all three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, record that Jesus did not respond to the crowd, but that he simply got into the boat and left them. I can't think of anything more frightening. Can you? I would dare say this is more frightening than those two demon-possessed men who were so fierce and dangerous. That Christ would do such a marvelous work in front of them, such glorious work. And their response to that, the people of the city would be simply this, get out of here. Leave. And he leaves. I want to say to you this morning, those who are here and you don't follow Christ are those who are listening. Beware of ever saying to Jesus, whether in your words or in your attitude, to depart from you. Beware of ever asking Jesus to leave you alone. Beware of ever saying to him that you want to stay the way you are. Because he might very well just do that. In 1729, Solomon Stoddard, the pastor of Northampton Church, died. After his death, his grandson, you may have heard of him, Jonathan Edwards, became pastor. And soon after becoming pastor, he preached a sermon. Can you, I just want you to imagine this. It's one of the first sermons he preached to them as lead pastor. The sermon was called, Living Unconverted Under an Imminent Means of Grace. Living Unconverted Under an Imminent Means of Grace. The imminent means of grace that Jonathan was referring to was his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, who was preaching the gospel faithfully to them week in and week out, and yet people sat among them unconverted, lost. And he gave warning. In that sermon, that there's great danger in rejecting the gospel. I would say some of you, whether you're viewing this online or, or you're here in person, you've heard the gospel, you've seen the effects of the gospel, you've seen the power of the gospel. You've been presented the great danger you're in if you remain in your sins, yet you remain unconverted. Do you realize this morning that it is God's good grace to you to provide that? To provide the gift of hearing the gospel? To provide the gift of being able to see and witness lives changed and transformed? Do you realize this morning it's a gift 
to be told of the great danger that you're in because of sin. It's a gift. Yeah, you may not be like those who beg Jesus to leave, but your non-response is the same. In your delay to repent of your sins and turn to Christ, you're assuming things. You're assuming there's more time. You're assuming God will continue to be gracious to you and to allow you to hear this glorious gospel. You're assuming that God owes you this chance. You're assuming that God will give you mercy. You're assuming that your sins really aren't that bad. And this morning, the most loving thing I can say to you is for you to repent of your sins and turn to this glorious Savior that Matthew presents to us. Turn to Him now. As Paul told the church at Corinth, today is the day of salvation. It's now. But if you continue in your assumptions about God, you will die without Christ and face His wrath for all eternity. Don't be like those of the city. Don't reject Him. Because He may very well give you what you want. Let's pray.